0: Welcome back to Homestuck: Made This World, a show about the critical analysis and contextualization of the webcomic Homestuck. I'm Michael, and with me, as usual, is Cameron. Yep. Here I am. Mm-hmm. Already here. Uh, how you feeling, Cameron? Well, I was all—I all, was always here,
1: and my future think, uh, my omniscience tells me I will always be here, uh-uh. and consequently, I was still here in the first episode. <laughs> That's true. You were here in the first episode. Mm-hmm. It's like when you make a thing uh, that is entirely fiction, you create a little character within it who says uh, what things will and did happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like you're entirely in control of that. Yeah. <laughs> and so it is arbitrary what omniscience means within a <laughs> fictional construct. <laughs>
2: Oh uh, today See?
1: coming in hot. <laughs> Woo You remember that plane in Conair yeah. when it was uh mm-hmm. it had mm-hmm. that car behind it and it was coming in hot into the
0: Las Vegas area? <laughs> uh what's really funny about this is like that's not how it works in the film, but yes, okay. <laughs> yeah, that isn't. They, I think they cut the car off, right? Before yeah. they come into But Las Homestuck Vegas. presents that scene as if the car is still dangling from the back of the plane. So who's to it say what's be. real or not? I don't know.
1: Well, I'm omniscient. And I can tell you that it, it did happen that way, and it will happen that way, and it's currently happening
0: that way. <laughs> uh, this is episode six, two, uh, episode six, part two, and uh, we're just going to continue reading Act Five, Act Two, the Never Ending Act. Uh, golly, at this point, uh, historically, people were really waiting for this thing to end.
2: <laughs> oh, really?
0: Um, well, so, so I so I saw some. Uh, I got a question for you. Here okay. At the tippy top.
2: hmm
1: I saw some people in the Discord saying something to the effect of this is like the height of uh, or maybe I misunderstood, but is this the height of homestuck popularity? Uh
0: if like you 5-2 in particular. You mean 6-2 in particular? Oh, 5-2, Act 5-2. Um, right, 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 right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, great system we got here. Uh I So episode six, two, is it the height of popularity
1: (laughs) of Homestuck made this world? Of course. No, 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 no. Don't speak. Don't speak too quickly
0: because I know you are omniscient Mm -hmm. and you will know what happened and what did happen and what is happening right now.
1: Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, the answer is kind of yes and no. Uh, We are we are hitting the point where like. It's really ratcheting up like this episode in particular is going to cover some of the stuff that I personally associate with like the the kind of crest of Homestuck's popularity, like this moment where it really like seemed to break out of whatever weird boundary it had around it before and was really like becoming a a presence at conventions in a way that was a maybe disturbing some people in terms of like just where where did this thing come from and what is it um and I would say like uh, I mentioned I think maybe in the previous part episode that uh the the like Google popularity index right uh isn't going to peak for about another year or so from where we are mm-hmm. um. But, like, we are kind of hitting the point, like, you know, this is... Uh, well, using my omniscience, I'll just go ahead and uh, say, like, we are hitting the point where, like, Act 5, Act 2 is going to end. And that was kind of a huge climax point. I mean, it's a huge climax for the story, but also a, uh, a like, moment that... Because the the Homestuck fans, I think, were really excited for this act to end, a lot of people... Who were not Homestuck fans kind of started piling on to kind of you know experience the end of Act Five, Act Two together. Um, and I, I definitely feel like this is uh, the other way to put this. Uh, uh I'll talk. We'll talk about this more like in the actual discussion. We are also entering sort of uh, undeniably the era of Homestuck cringe.
2: Hmm.
0: Which is here. Uh, I'm using this to describe what I would say are like, uh, the fandom. The fandom is getting really comfortable with being a fandom and doing fandom things in public. Now, this has been happening before, uh, but it's going to going to continue to happen and and keep happening, uh, in increasingly awkward ways, uh, as as we go forward. Um, so that's another way of making like another barometer of of this, right? There there right. are some. So there's some really goofy stuff uh I'm I'm going to have to share with you great
2: yeah. you know I love that mhm
0: <laughs> uh but that's all to say yeah like this is uh this is a weird kind of moment in the comic because uh it is very different from all the stuff that's come before it and in the Something Awful thread, definitely people who are like coming into the thread now and being like, man, I just like binged this whole comic, just got caught up. Uh, and now it's completely different, <laughs> like different stuff is happening. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, so really there is like a, a bunch of new readers coming in. Um, and sort of getting caught up on Homestuck just at the moment that Homestuck is really changing and starting to uh, move toward the end of Act 5, Act 2, uh, which I guess I can uh, really tee us up for if we're ready for the summary. Mm, tee me up. Okay. tee me up, Michael. All right. <clears throat> Doc Scratch assumes the narration of the comic, transforming the entire MS Paint Adventures website into his green apartment, where it is easier to read his white text. He promises he can fix Homestuck Disc 2, and by the time he is done, the story will have progressed to a point he calls the critical event, when the various temporally discontinuous plot lines of Homestuck he has manipulated reach their implied climaxes, which will finally end Act 5. This includes, of course, his own impending death. As we wait, he offers to explain for us what we're missing, and because having Homestuck explained to you by a smug know-it-all rather than reading it yourself sounds undeniably compelling, we agree. What happens is this. Terezi's coin flip is a constant across all timelines. Vriska uses her luck manipulation to draw the outcome allowing her, in Terezi's words, to go, knowing that Terezi was being duplicitous by using go to mean die. Terezi would know this would happen, of course, and would know Vriska knew that she knew, so when Vriska turned to leave, it would be a dare to go through with the obvious backstab. Terezi does not, and Vriska goes off to fight Jack Noir. Doc says there is a little more to tell, but he first switches the topic to the duel between Rose and Jack Noir in the kids' session, immediately following John's death. Rose puts up a fight, but Jack eventually kills her and departs. John, however, resurrects with the powers of the God tier, which is represented by an ornate grandfather clock in Doc's apartment that ticks and talks between heroic and just, neither of which describes John's recent end. Doc reminds us that we already saw John alive in the future during his first conversation with Carcat, and just before he initiates the session scratch, so we should have seen this coming. Doc now moves into the MSPA webpage's top banner, which historically up until this point displayed Project Wonderful ads. Since he took over narration, it has shown a narrow image of Doc's apartment, and in the future, some scenes I describe take place there simultaneously with regular page panels. Vriska then heads off to fight Jack, who immediately follows her trail back to the meteor lab. In the banner, Spade Slick enters Doc's apartment and attacks him before being distracted by Candy, like we've already seen. Doc returns to the narration, explaining that he is an excellent host to his many guests, one of whom was of course us from the past. He names and briefly explains an idea he calls circumstantial simultaneity, a mechanism of paradox space which he claims is not fully comprehensible to the mortal mind. Here he uses it to describe the way certain elements of Homestuck tend to repeat or echo each other, such as in this specific instance, the fact that Rose and Vriska were both heroes of light, in the parlance of the game, who dueled the same Jack Noir, as well as the interwoven asynchronous causality stuff we've already seen. Doc remarks that all we've seen thus far, and have yet to see, up to and including the critical moment, are ruled by circumstantial simultaneity. Anyway, Jack destroys the Meteor Lab and returns with Karkat and Teresi's corpses as trophies. Jack and an enraged Vriska begin their duel. Doc pauses to open the blood-spattered codebook from Gamzee's alternate timeline murder spree, which he has made into a scrapbook filled with the previous Homestuck panels. Doc admits he does not know for certain what happened next with the duel and will be required to speculate. He uses some previous images from Homestuck to both speed up the process of storytelling and as an acknowledgement that everything in Paradox Space is a reproduction of a previous event from either the main or offshoot timeline. In this case, he flips the art from Rose's duel with Jack into a duel between Vriska and Jack. Increasingly relying on guesswork, Doc supposes Vriska rolled her dice and used all her luck to get the most favorable result, unlocking her most powerful attack. She and Jack probably dueled for some time, and while Doc can't say for certain who won, he suggests she stood a chance. Doc reveals that he has to speculate about Vriska because he only has full knowledge of the Alpha Timeline, which is the timeline that features both his birth and death, and not any alternatives. However, as a seer of mind, Terezi can know alternate timelines with some certainty, and seeing all of what I've just described proves to her that Vriska cannot be allowed to leave. We return now to the alpha timeline, which it turns out we have not been observing, and Terezi stabs Friska in the back. She is then joined on the roof of the meteor lab by Karkat, Kanaya, and Sullex, who are all tailed by Gamzee. On the battlefield, John resurrects and reads his last message from Vriska, which advises him to save Rose's dream self by kissing her corpse. Vriska says she won't be jealous and asks John if, when everyone meets up, he would like to maybe go on a date with her. In the banner panels, Spade Slick sets fire to Doc's apartment, and Doc pulls a fire alarm to summon Matchsticks, the heretofore unseen eleventh member of the Felt, who appears and puts out the fire. Slick kills him at just the moment Clover, the tiniest and luckiest member of the Felt, happens by. Clover flips his lucky quarter, which summons the heretofore unseen fourteenth member of the Felt, Quarters, who uses his gatling gun to kill Spade Slick. This is all revealed to be an alternate timeline witnessed by Snow Man, The former troll session black queen and heretofore comparatively frequently seen eighth member of the felt who intervenes at an earlier point to kill quarters, saving Slick. She and Slick begin to passionately make out, scandalizing Doc Scratch. Doc switches the banner panels to show Jade and Dave collecting frogs on Jade's planet, where the volcano is finally active once more. Doc shoes Snowman away, as Jade and Dave are attacked by and fight Jack Noir, who cannot harm Jade, but kills Dave. Vriska's god-tier clock ticks down to a just ending, right as Spade Slick, angry now that Snowman is gone, uses the crowbar he got in the intermission to smash it. Vriska stays dead, and Doc, fed up with his rude guest, uses his scrapbook to bludgeon Slick, spraying Homestuck panels everywhere. Once Slick is cowed, Doc hands over his revolver and orders Slick to kill Snowman and end the universe, teleporting him away to do so. Jade and John kiss Dave and Rose, respectively and circumstantially simultaneously, resurrecting both purple kid dream selves on the moon. Karkat messages John and, while avoiding saying Vriska is dead, mentions having dealt with Gamzee in a way he suspects John wouldn't understand. The point now is, they have to get everything ready for the Scratch. Jade has hatched a plan for the kids to escape the Scratched session by traveling through something called the Yellow Yard, which will allow them to enter the new session. Meanwhile, the explosion of the green sun will be visible throughout the furthest ring, where the trolls will rendezvous with a radio. Doc's apartment is a mess, and he leaves us with a candy bowl of updates, encouraging us to sort among the panels scattered about while he fixes his clock and tidies. We click through various asynchronous scenes. On the commandeered battleship, the courtyard droll pickpockets Dad's wallet from an oblivious WV and flees. Liv Tyler the cyber bunny notices and gives chase, stealing back the wallet and removing the tumor, leaving C.D. none the wiser. On Earth, in the past, John is trolled by Vriska, who gloats about her future importance. However, she soon realizes she is dead, and this is a dream bubble. She appears in person and hangs out with John. They discuss their respective lives. John eventually realizes he is the John who died trying to meet his denizen too early, back in Act 4. All the kids' sprites are drawn to the battlefield. Jasper Sprite and Nepeta have a conversation about love and mortality. Meanwhile, Jade Sprite and Dave Sprite reflect on their strange existential situations as secondary copies of themselves, and Dave Sprite begins to explain to Jade Sprite what happened in the offshoot timeline when he met his denizen. Elsewhere, Nana Sprite finds Dad's bloody hat. His PDA is nearby, with a new message notification. On Earth and in the past, regular Dave recounts to Rose a nightmare he had about repeatedly dying. Surprise, this turns out to be a dream bubble, and Dave cannot tell whether he is sleeping or dead, as he recalls acquiring the tumor from Liv Tyler and cutting loose Purpo's moon to sail into the furthest ring. Rose reveals she knocked Dave out after he cut the moon loose, and she plans to pursue the suicide mission to bomb the green sun alone. A banging sound emanates from somewhere in Doc Scratch's apartment, and as he sets off to see why a mysterious she is, quote, acting up, he tells us to continue sorting through the loose panels. However, we do not, pausing here for now, because that's what I said to do. Uh, let me, let me try a thing out on you. Okay.
1: You ready? Mm Mm-hmm. What does this sound like? Man, I gotta go cut
0: the moon loose. (laughs) well it sounds like you have to go off on a dangerous mission cameron yep you got it Mm -hmm. (laughs) okay that's it great episode good up (laughs) cutting loose the moon is a dangerous mission Mm -hmm. what's what's all this clicking around yeah do yeah um well, uh, you know, what, what do you mean, I guess? What is, what is with it?
1: Uh, but what, what is the supposed with that we do? <laughs> I don't like it. We got to yeah. click on all this stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: Quit making me click. Um, so one of the things that I think uh, is interesting about this and I think makes this whole thing feel or read maybe a little bit differently. Well, not, not even maybe. Like, it does. Uh, reading these updates live, all of these Scratch updates... Um, was a very strange experience because how this would work after. So to establish some context for people who aren't reading along um, during kind of the first half of this reading uh, scratch is just it, it basically just talking to the reader and like, uh, you know, serving the function of the normal narration and you're just kind of clicking through panels. Once mm-hmm. you get to the point where the panels have been uh, scattered everywhere Uh, You see a kind of central panel on the page that has multiple like sub panels within it because the panel is an image of all of the panels scattered around Doc Scratch's apartment. And so you click on the images uh, that then takes you to like the scene represented in that panel. How this uh, worked in terms of like live historical updates is uh, Hussey would post like the, the sort of central panel that has all of the sub panels within it. And then mm-hmm. over the next couple of days would finish the stories for each of the sub panels. So you actually didn't get uh, this, like, you know, obviously the implication was you could eventually you're going to be able to click on all of these and read all this stuff, uh, but it still worked in uh, terms of like day-to-day serial updates, except at this point it wasn't even day-to-day. Like there would be several days between updates um, because one of the things that uh, Hussey would do uh, would be like... Uh sometimes it would be like, okay, here's a little bit of this story, and then several days go by, and then it's like, bam, all of them are done now, right? 48 panels in a day or something uh ridiculous like that. Um but they wow. Yeah, right. But they weren't uh being posted like as, as rapid pace as they were before. Uh so there's this weird way that like historically, uh in, in terms of like previous pacing, this felt kind of excruciating. <laughs> Right. Because you could see like what one of the next little stories was going to be, uh, but you couldn't get it yet. Uh, and that's, in fact, one of the things that happens in in the thread is people are like, oh, man, like, look at this little conversation. I can't wait until we get there. Um, but if you uh, clicked on it, you got this uh, little image that I'm posting in the chat for you, Cameron, of uh, Hussey's author avatar, like banging away at a keyboard with the, the caption panel isn't done yet. Great. Yeah. So uh, that's that's one way of talking about how this works. The other way of talking about this kind of with Homestuck as a finished object and with all of this in front of us um, is how much this underscores uh, one of Homestuck's maybe recurring points. I'm parentheses, question mark, because I don't know if this is necessarily a point or just like a feature of the object. But um anything can happen at any time and whatever is happening at any time could be happening at any time relative to when you're actually like reading it or viewing it or what have you. Right. Uh, there's Mm -hmm. in terms of design here, um, this appears to give you, uh, the reader, some sort of choice about how you're going to navigate through the story. Um, but it's really presented with the understanding that you're just going to click on all of these, and uh, it fundamentally does not matter in what order you click through and read these things, right? You're always going to – like, it's, uh, it's uh, um, about sort of, like, looping you through a sort of hub to get you caught up on various bits of information, and then it moves you to the next page with more panels, and that's a new hub, and you loop through that and go to the next one. Um, right. So there's this really interesting thing happening where, uh, it is, uh, modeling agency, like, like this idea of like reader or like interlocutor agency in terms of like, oh, you get to choose what you're going to read next, except, you know, what you're going to read next is the next scene of Homestuck. And all of these scenes are kind of, uh, uh, Lego pieces that you can snap together in whatever order, because they have, uh, uh, like... Thematic overlap that allows them to snap together in in that way, right? All of these little mm. scenes that we click through here at the end are about characters dying or reflecting on their identity or their upbringing, and so uh, you know, it all it all of that gets brought to the fore, especially following on from like what uh, Doc Scratch says about this circumstantial simultaneity. Yeah, it's all fill in too. I mean, uh, some of some of it is like plotty
1: plotty plot plot (laughs) Mm -hmm. but for the most part uh it's uh character uh fill-in right Right. like i you know i've said this a few times but like i totally get why people are in love with dave now Mm -hmm. um you know there's been some discussion in the discord uh you know and, and i think this is a useful way of thinking about it about like you know why do why does vriska get so much screen time to like go through these different stages with Friska, and it's because Friska is like a character that Hussey enjoys writing, mm-hmm. you know, and and we, whatever that is, right? But like on a basic level, it is very clear that she is a character that Hussey is engaged in working through, mm-hmm. and that is very clearly also the case with Dave. Um, and and it's kind of astonishing, like how much you can get out or not not any generic person, but how much, uh, I guess, like breadth and depth you can get out of Dave <laughs> when you push on it hard enough, which like c- compare that to the characterization of John at this point. Mm-hmm. And John's just, uh, he's still a little beautiful baby boy. Right. He's, he's an extremely simple character, mm-hmm. like in a basic level. And uh, everyone else has these like levels of, what's going on with them that that is a pretty fascinating. And a lot of these uh, little panels that we're clicking on they're like their whole point is to just give you more depth of these people. Mm-hmm. Other than that one where uh, uh, Nana Sprite's talking to Nepeta. <laughs> <laughs> you mean Jasper Sprite? Oh, Jasper Sprite. It's all yeah, it's the so. cat theme, Cameron. Circumstantial I yeah, 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 yeah no. I had it in my head the right one. I just <laughs> said the wrong
0: one. Yeah. Uh... uh Uh, It's interesting that you bring this up because, yeah, people are like, oh, wow, like some some time with Dave. Uh, But people are also like, hey, why isn't John like reacting more to the fact that he just discovered his dad's corpse? (laughs) Right. Uh, Like this becomes a a kind of uh, bit of discussion that's going to recur for for quite a while, um, at least historically, which is like, why isn't like how is why is John not getting kind of, like, developed, right? Like, why does John mm-hmm. seem to be just kind of the same old John? And this results into uh, uh, some of this fan art that I'm going to send you. This is a piece by an artist named Titties. Great. Um, <laughs> cool. Uh, but it's, like, a, a sad, weeping John, like, holding a mask of his own smiling face in front of his face with, like, a text behind him just repeating, everything will be okay. That's a real Tumblr experience
1: mm-hmm. like that's a piece of art i associate very heavily with like the sherlock
0: era of <laughs> tumblr fan production yeah um
1: uh interesting fascinating
0: yeah uh it, it's it's a real uh i mean it, it refers or refers but i guess points us back to um, this constant dynamic uh, that I think has been com- like has been coming up more and more as we've been reading this, um, which is this kind of weird dance where the story will present a character in a certain way. And the reader base is constantly thinking, like, well, what about, like, why not this? Or, like, what, mm-hmm. like, here is how this character is being presented in the fiction, but here's, like, how I'm imagining their psychology or how I'm imagining their feelings. Um, and in a way that allows the, the you know, fan or reader or what have you to kind of uh, put in depth where there is none textually, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, not to spoil too much, but yeah, we're eventually going to get some stuff about this from John. Um, but it is, uh, all more in this weird dynamic where people have been asking for it or like historically people have been asking for it long before it actually shows up. Um, and it... Gives the whole comic kind of a, a weird flavor because it does feel like for a long time, John almost just exists as he does to maybe balance or like Dave and Rose R- R- and uh, So, yeah. Um That's what I have to say about that. <laughs> so is uh,
1: is the entirety of Homestuck just someone reading this book of Homestuck?
0: That's a question to hold in mind, I guess, right? Uh uh right.
1: 'cause like this device mm-hmm. and you and you watch someone flip through it to do to see Homestuck and it's a bunch of panels bit by bit mm-hmm. that just feels like a meta element mm-hmm. of that's what Homestuck is.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and it, uh not even so much the the book, right? But uh remember that the the scrapbook, the photo album, is one of Manovich's uh uh examples of like the predecessor for the database. Mm-hmm. Uh so here are all of these uh panels that have maybe no no inherent order to them or if there is an order to them it's something that has to be assembled either because of the way that they've been put together into the book or like the way that you choose to flip through the book um Mm -hmm. and so uh it's the way that i would push on this because uh You know, we're seeing it with Doc Scratch and the way he takes over the website. Uh, The MS Paint Adventures website was, you know, kind of mostly grays, like very neutral, kind of like computer colors. Scratch Mm -hmm. takes over, it becomes green, right? We are in, quote unquote, Doc Scratch's apartment. Uh, The fact that the banner ads that had been, you know, there forever become part of the comic now, like Scratch takes over the comic and turns the banner ads into uh, places where additional story can happen. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, this is all to say, uh, the the Scrapbook, in some ways, is like you know a metonymy or representative of Homestuck, uh, but in another way of looking at it, like the scrapbook is a way of thinking about the website, because what is a website but a database of uh, various materials that uh, could be put together in any order but have been structured to come together based on user commands and various inputs. Hmm, right? Mm, like this is this is my thinking uh, that we mm-hmm. need to be thinking about like where this is for me, Homestuck is constantly bringing us, bringing us back to like the level of the medium itself. Um, right. even even more so now that we've got like stuff happening in the top banner that is sort of like already happened, but then also goes beyond that and shows effects on what's happening in the main page panels. Uh, this ties back into stuff I uh, was reading from uh, Galloway really early on about the interface effect uh, and his idea of the polyptic, which was his term for kind of the way that the, a TV show like 24 worked, where you had a timeline, here are all these characters on this timeline, and we're going to watch kind of their simultaneous uh, bits of action. Um, and like, what is, you know, what, what is happening now, but like this kind of simultaneity being brought even more to the fore, except, uh, whereas in 24, it is a normal timeline, right? A normal human timeline with no like science fiction element. Now we have all of these narratives that are ostensibly part of the same story, but all have different chronologies and are all being, like, worked into causality together across kind of temporal boundaries. Um, Right, so uh, uh, just to return to what Galloway says, uh, uh, the visual simultaneity uh, is paired with a specific form of narrative construction that likewise privileges the complex synchrony of an ongoing swarm of characters and a web of interaction.
1: Wow. Yep.
0: Uh,
1: Same. (laughs) uh i don't like this
0: duck scratch fella yeah (laughs) i think he's nefarious (laughs) what gives you that impression his big orb yeah the big orb is not great uh Mm -hmm. things with big orbs for heads are usually not great right he's also like uh clearly like He's taken over the comic, right? Uh, He's presented Mm -hmm. as this villain. He has something to do with the Felton Lord English, like whatever that is, that's all floating in the background. Um, But now we have uh, this narrator character who who cannot be controlled, right, in the way that other characters can be, quote-unquote, controlled by uh, the narrative apparatus, uh, who instead takes control of the narrative apparatus himself. And uh, this is all happening, Right. He's saying like, oh, well, you're not going to hear this story in in the way that you've expected to hear it before at a moment when the story is not going to progress as it's progressed before. Like the updates are slowing down and Scratch kind of makes uh, makes a point of this by so much of his uh, in between like plot beats, how Scratch's commands will often uh, progress is just him ostensibly him saying tick, talk, tick. Talk to show like Mm -hmm. time passing. Um, So, Homestuck, which has been defined by kind of this rapid pace, right? A lot of compression, a lot of things happening very, very quickly. Uh, We talked last time about how Hussey's update schedule has changed and this is, you know, resulting in certain like reactions from certain parts of of the reader base. Um but now Hussey in, in a typically Hussey and move like folds all this into the comic itself by having a character come in and slow down the pace of the comic and narrate the comic in such a way that makes it feel even slower, right? That emphasizes the fact that time is passing uh in a way that it wasn't before. Um and the, the other complicating factor here is then uh, we have Andrew Hussey, the person who's making Homestuck, uh, but then there's also Andrew Hussey, like the character within Homestuck. And Doc Scratch has essentially, you know, just taken over the narration from Hussey uh, in this way that for me, historically, is like deeply fascinating, uh, because uh, at this point in, in kind of my intellectual trajectory, I'm all in on uh, the ways that character voices get constructed. And it's particularly how character voices or like, um, let's say, generic voices, particularly in fiction within the novel, uh, the way these things all work together. Uh, and the, the, the context at which I approach this historically and, and kind of a little bit now is through the work of Mikhail Bakhtin. Uh, who is this uh, uh, Russian formalist from the early 20th century. Um, He was a Soviet critic, but he was like a dissident Soviet critic. He ended up uh, being imprisoned because um, he ran in intellectual circles that were basically like Christian Marxist. Uh, and during, um, uh, uh, like, Stalin's, like, years in power, like, these were some of the groups that were cracked down upon. Um, Just a side note, we're thinking about, like, why Bakhtin in particular gets really taken up in uh, Anglophone criticism at this point uh, as, uh, you know, someone who was imprisoned by Soviets, and his overall argument eventually is that uh, fiction is capable of evacuating ideology from discourse. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, but how that works for Bakhtin, uh, these are all things you can look in on your own, but like what's important here is that Bakhtin has this idea of heteroglossia, uh, which is that, uh, all language is social language. So, uh, I mean, this is, this is actually in some ways very, very obvious, right? Uh, I speak on this podcast uh, in a way that is different from the way that I speak to people in my family, that is different from the way that I type in Discord, that is different from the way that I talk on Twitter, that is different from the way that I talk in front of a class when I'm lecturing. Uh, So, you know, there's one way of thinking about this, that every person kind of has different uh, modalities of their own voice that they'll dip into for social reasons, Um, But Bakhtin kind of like takes this out and extrapolates it further into this notion that uh, because we learn to speak from the world around us, from kind of the social world, um, we are always struggling to make a language that is not our own kind of work for us uh right we're we're trying to take words that we did not invent but make them mean things or point to things uh or work in ways uh that will serve us um and like allow us to like communicate and get the things that we need in the world and For Bakhtin's theory of the novel, then, uh, he argues that novels in particular are where we see this happening, not just for kind of like reasons of, you know, personal uh, existence, but for kind of like aesthetic purposes. Uh, For Bakhtin, the novel is a genre that... Uh, is constantly pulling in different forms of speech and then assigning them to, like, specific characters. So uh, uh, Bakhtin often talks about, like, English comic novels in this context. So something like Charles Dickens, uh, you read a Dickens novel, and, like, here's a character who's a government bureaucrat, and when he speaks or when the narrative speaks about him, right, when the narrative describes him, Uh, It will dip into language that is clearly echoing uh, official proclamations and statements by government bureaucracies. Um, The example that Bakhtin uses is this character who is described as, and he's a government bureaucrat, but uh, the way his job is described is something like, um, uh, he he was busy bringing uh, English civilization to other corners of the world or something like that. And it's presented in such a way as, like, to uh, make fun of that character, right? Like, clearly this character is kind of silly and, like, there's irony in the way that uh, this kind of official language is being used to describe his work. And so when Bakhtin talks about how uh, uh, you can evacuate ideological content from language, this is what he means. Uh, He thinks that irony, the way that you use irony, uh, is basically just a, a, a firm and good critique ...of any official institution. Uh, And I would disagree with that, but at the time that I'm reading Homestuck, uh, I'm very interested in uh, Bakhtin's kind of bigger claim, which is that even as, uh, like, the comedic uh, transpositions of different languages allow you to, uh, like sort of get around straight ideological uh, statements. The other thing Bakhtin says is that when you're reading a novel, it is precisely by looking at the ways that these languages get positioned against each other that you can find the trace of the author, right? All of this stuff, even though it's social, even though it's coming from someone outside of the author, uh, the author themselves in the end, is making choices about which voices to incorporate, how to present them, and how to play them off of one another uh, in ways that uh, you can kind of reverse engineer to kind of get at what the author is thinking or, like, working toward. And so what's Mm -hmm. interesting to me here, uh, historically and even today, is the way that uh, Hussey is doing something that plenty of authors have done, which is have kind of this, like, uh, malevolent or, like, sort of mischievous or not-so-great, like, sub-narrator. Um, and that is positioned against this kind of buffoonish version of Hussey themselves, right? So uh, it, this is, like, a big, like, in some ways similar to the comic novels that Bakhtin talks about and different. So, uh... uh you know, in in Don Quixote, like Cervantes shows up as a character, right? As this guy who's like supposed to be writing this story, uh, and he's like sort of at a loss with what he's doing. Similarly in Dickens, uh uh Dickens' novel uh Bleak House has this really weird structure where uh in alternating chapters it's like third person omniscient and then like first person this young woman who is like a character in the novel. Um and it just flips back and forth for apparently no reason, except as you read. Uh, the first-person narrator, um, I believe her name is Esther, uh, she starts referencing the other narrator, which is not, like, a character, but, like, she is aware that there is another person narrating the story, and that person both is and is not Charles Dickens. It's what uh, Bakhtin calls, like, a posited author, uh, which is kind of like the the fictional persona that exists for uh, the, the author in order to narrate the work. So Hussey takes, like, this kind of common feature of a novel which is like the the sort of depersonalized uh uh narrative apparatus uh makes it into a straight up character and then has that character get deposed by another character which all kind of uh you know raises like raises these questions like, what's the aim? What's the goal? Like, it is clear that Homestuck is trying to get us uh, to think about what a narrator slash author is and, like, what function those things serve. Um, and we'll have more to to say about that as we continue to read, obviously, because we're just kind of here in the moment. Uh, but, like, one of the things that I think is clear is that uh, this is the way that you get, like, this is a way that Hussie models, like, uh, an author that you shouldn't listen to. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Uh well, well I'm thinking about
1: too, kind of our bonus content, mm-hmm. you know, the you know patreon.com/range touch down in the description below. Um and I'm I, and the reason I'm thinking about that is I'm thinking about the other texts that uh Homestuck is in conversation with. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And they're all stories about stories or stories that are second order stories, mm-hmm. meaning they they take the kind of presuppositions of the previous things and push them so far beyond, right? I mean, this is why Con Air works as a film is that it, it's, you know, high, it's the high concept of a high concept, right? Mm-hmm. What, mm-hmm. what if there was a prison ba- break with a bunch of like kooky cast characters in it? Okay, because that's just The Rock, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what if that... Or, you know, kind of the flip of the rock, right? Because it's, it's, uh, it doesn't matter. Anyway, similar idea though, right? You got a prison, you got a kooky cast of characters. They're all doing stuff within that, blah, blah, blah. It's a very 80s and 90s style of film. It's kind of like Predator 2, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the uh, and then it's like, and what if you put him on a plane, right? Mm-hmm. It's this uh, additional escalation of the thing. The never-ending story, of course, we talked about that extensively. I still think that the never-ending story is the the core text for understanding what we've read of Homestuck at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that it is a kind of like skeleton key to understanding many of the meta moves that happen here um and then hook right which which um will already be out by the time that people are are hearing this mm-hmm. but you know what what is the the meta reflection on the original story mm-hmm. as it exists right and so who who is a trustworthy storyteller and also little monsters is that too right this kind of like british schoolboy that that evil character there mm-hmm. um you know it, he he gives you a world that works in a particular way, and then at the end you realize, oh, the construction of that world was in fact evil to begin with. Mm-hmm. You know that that was that the the person telling you how the world works is in fact not supposed to be trusted mm-hmm. uh, inherently because they're the one telling you how the world works. Um, so it, it is interesting to me that this to with all of these kind of like very purposeful. Um, reference interlocked works you know that show up in homestuck so far all of them to me tell a very similar story about stories mm-hmm. uh, you know they all make a very uh, similar move toward what a story is um they're they're not just b movies right or they're not just like uh, you know these like hits for people who like, grew up in the 80s right <laughs> um they they are a particular kind of thing right like the goonies does not have the same relationship to story as hook mm-hmm. right like those those are a different approach to you know canonicity story what does it mean to build on something that that came before um and, and so you know that's kind of the way i think about Doc scratch and the way i think about all of these meta moves is that hussy is giving us so many references to these other types of weird things i'm actually really surprised that return to oz has not showed up mm-hmm uh, in the comic at this point because it very much i was actually watching hook and thinking oh return to oz also does the same thing um and maybe i mean weirdly enough the wizard of oz doesn't show up very much at all in homestuck mm-hmm. uh, when you think it would mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. like on some like basic level yeah but and, and anyway what i'm saying is that i i think that there is i think you're right i think that there, repeatedly with Hussey's meta moves as a character here with um all of the characters talking about the rules of the story that they live in mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, that they exist within constantly. You know, the thing that I that we kind of like drilled into about Terezi a couple episodes ago uh, about like, well, Terezi is presenting us the rules of the world and the rules of like the story that these people are in. And, you know, we had some uh, feedback on that story uh, mechanism, like at the level of story, right? But at least within Homestuck itself, that is true, you mm-hmm. know, true in, in big quotation marks as much as anything can be true within um, uh, a universe in which uh, everything is retconnable and everything is was already the way it got retconned to be, mm-hmm. right? Um so something that I wrote down in my notes that has to do with this is on 3775, if, if we want to jump there, or if, okay. or if the listener wants to check it out, 3775. Um, and so this is with within the Terezi, uh, uh, the wine in front of me moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, this whole thing, and what was so interesting to me about this entire thing, this entire kind of sequence between Terezi and Vriska and uh, the they're like class capabilities mm-hmm. you know they each have abilities that are like passives and those passives are working and operating and what the comic is doing in this moment is telling us how we're supposed to read character interactions yes it, and what what is interesting to me is is that that this is actually a huge moment in the comic so far i think that this is as big a moment in the comic so far as the introduction of the trolls and it is just as important as, like, John putting Suburban for the first time and, and you know, uh, getting a, uh, uh, what, client-user relationship? I forget. Client. And then what was the other one? Is it user? Server client. That. When he finally hooks in with, with Rose and she's like, uh, and she's building stuff, right? Uh-huh. Like, that, when when Rose begins building stuff in John's actual house. Homestuck changes mm-hmm. because it changes into a combinatory game with a bunch of rules that you have to memorize. Mm-hmm. And then throughout the you know, that rest of that first chunk basically into the trolls appear, it is constantly building on that with additional rules of suburb and this kind of skya thing going on and all the additional both uh game rules and like metaphysics that support them. Mm-hmm. When the trolls are introduced, it becomes a comic that is about character relationships. Mm-hmm. It, it becomes, and we talked about that, right? You know, the kind of the emergence of of really explicit melodrama. The fact that really what the the, the deliverable is here, uh, with so much skipping of game rules, right? Okay, you know the game rules already. Now we get all these character interactions that kind of drive the bus as far as like what is going on in this comic. What happens here in this kind of like? thing that's happening uh b- between these two characters is that we are being told we are beginning being given a new reading strategy mm-hmm. we are no longer reading only for rules mm-hmm. and like the development of those we are no longer reading only for character interactions we are being told that the thing that we're supposed to pay attention to uh, attention to are is is a kind of set of game rules for character relations mm-hmm. That those are the things that we are supposed to focus in on. And in fact, if you are, are missing them, you are not getting the full effect of Homestuck. Right. That this is a transformation in the way that we as readers are supposed to engage with the text. Mm-hmm and I, I don't think we can like undersell that at all <laughs> um and now it makes so much sense retroactively why so many people are talking about this
0: kind of thing in like the discord right uh, um, should we read this like, comic or read this panel for for the listener
1: sure yeah yeah, yeah. i'm working my way okay. to it i think i think i'm ready now okay, okay
0: Thirty seventy
1: seventy five. Each was gambling, not with any vehicle of probability, which had been eliminated from the equation, but with each other's intentions. The thief indeed took the seer's bait, stealing the luck needed to affect the flip in defiance of her dare, and in turning to leave, she then posed a dare of her own to the seer, challenging her to back up the implied threat. This was the thief's gamble. She wagered the seer would not be able to go through with it. Right, so there's a set of game rules now mm-hmm. to why these characters had this going on. Oh, I, I, it is really funny. It, you know, it's the typical um, hussy deflationary move here, which is also very funny in the writing. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, it was not a vehicle of probability. This was the thief's gamble. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It wasn't a gamble, but then it was a gamble. Right. <laughs> uh, I think that's uh, you know this inversion that happens in the middle here. But but right, yeah. This this whole interaction, which feels like a uh, which, which is now being rewritten, mm-hmm. right, as a different type of interaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to me, that really locked into place. It's really this whole section, right, of of this explanatory thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that this is just what's up, right? Like, it's telling us a bunch of, like, things that are happening in the background that only surface in our ability to read the characters, their class relation, and then how they actually interact with each other. Mm-hmm. And, and it gives us a huge number of new interpretive tools to to work with which then you know we we don't we know I don't have any evidence of this but I'm certain that this is true uh that means that now every reader of Homestuck can go back through the entirety of Homestuck and read every interaction through this yes
0: exactly
1: like <laughs> so exactly it's, it's free yes. content it's free content speculation as free content or or rereading as content uh-huh. this is what it
0: is there are people who are rereading uh, like the entire comic right rather constantly mm-hmm. like looking for new stuff and this is the type of move that Hussy will pull this in like circumstantial simultaneity right this idea yes. that oh yeah uh-huh. I really want to talk about yes. that too um, uh, these become ways of going back into the comic and uncovering like complexities of character that weren't there before that literally did not exist before because uh there was nothing in the comic to suggest that you would have to look for them right it's it's a way of like uh activating stuff that is like latent in in the history of the comic and this is also mm-hmm. more to my point that like are we supposed to be doing this because doc scratch is the one who's teaching us to read this way and that's mm-hmm. something that i want us to sit with and we're going to sit with it for a good long while um because uh i don't know right like these are uh like on the one hand uh, Scratch is clearly like the, the evil narrator, right. Um, and presented in contrast to Hussy, who is not like the good narrator, right. The, the Hussy character is like a fool and annoying and is constantly showing up when you don't want them to. Um, mm-hmm. so there's like, uh, you know, there's a clear contrast between these characters, but one is not like, uh, the Hussy narrator is better insofar as he is not like, uh, evil, like not like mm-hmm. saying when I die, the greatest villain on earth is going to emerge. Right. Um, <laughs> Like that's not something the hussy character is doing. Um, uh, But Doc Scratch has like literally come in, taken over the comic and is saying things where like Doc Scratch is clearly a character you're not supposed to trust, lies to you, in it, as the reader, right? In in kind of this uh little section where uh he walks through this entire alternate timeline where Vriska goes off, uh gets everyone else killed and then duels Jack Noir. Um mm-hmm. and- and we had that conversation with him in the previous partisode where he basically says, like, oh, I never lie. And then he gives, like, all of his specific definitions of lying that helpfully preclude uh, all of these other things that any normal person would consider lies, right? If he right. H- h- he says that lies of omission are not lies, right? If I don't tell you something and you make an assumption, like, that's not a lie on my part. That's you making the wrong assumption. So. Right. Here in this timeline uh, shenanigan thing, uh, two things can be happening. One is that uh, people in the thread actually figure out that he's lying pretty quickly. Like, the second he starts speculating, they're like, oh, okay, something's up, because he constantly talks about how he's omniscient. And so, like, why is he speculating? Something is happening here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sort of the other thing, then, is like... When you have a narrator who is clearly, in some respects, untrustworthy, when do you trust that narrator versus distrust? Right, and so this is what I'm trying to get at with this question of like this strategy of reading that Scratch is putting forth. How do we evaluate uh, whether or not that is a good or useful strategy? Um And that's a question that I think you know we can we can hang on to for for a little bit. Um be-
1: Yeah, if if Sauron shows up and tells you how to understand the events of the Lord of the Rings. You would immediately be like, I don't know, buddy. I don't know. I don't know about you know reading the Hobbit as uh, 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 evil invaders who are coming in here to uh, you know <laughs> to throw your precious jewelry into your own lake of fire or mm-hmm, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when Doc Scratch comes, it's like, okay, I guess this is how we're supposed to understand everything, right? Right? Um, and I, you know, I think uh, good old fashioned rhetoric and form is a part of this. Uh, Doc Scratch is a charming character. He's fun as a villain. Mm-hmm. Um, and he takes on a narratorial voice that is extremely authoritative. Mm-hmm. Right. He interacts with the events of the comic and talks to people in such a way that, and, and in such a, um, dispassionate way that it begins to feel like random third-person narration. Mm-hmm. As opposed to character narration. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is a slippage that happens quite a bit in Homestuck, and is you know Hussey is very good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think every everyone can't do this, uh, but this way of making the perspectival feel neutral, mm-hmm. and that definitely has happened, despite the fact that uh, they're using every tool in the book to make you remember this is not neutral, this is perspectival. Mm-hmm. Everything is green on the page. You can <laughs> see the whole apartment mm-hmm. here. This character is constantly referring to themselves in the narration. And yet, you know, and I think part of it has to do with the kind of visual rhetoric of the thing, right? Even with Doc Scratch narrating, it's still image and caption, mm-hmm. right? In, in the same way that John's room is image and caption. Mm-hmm. And image and caption is a kind of uh, rhetorical frame, quite a visual rhetorical frame uh, has a way of producing neutral a visuality of neutrality, of, you know, and that's a big quotation marks, right? Um, you know, making something that is ideological or perspectival or um, uh, you know, from from a character mm-hmm. uh, appear to not be. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's a little bit of it too, right? It would be the same thing, and I maybe this will happen at some point along the way, but uh, if a walk around was done in a perspectival way. That was not just like, uh, you know, us embodying the character, but us being narrated something from a third person perspective around it. Mm-hmm. I think it would be very difficult to decouple that, mm-hmm. to, to kind of read that as what it is, as opposed to some other thing. Right. Um, yeah, I guess we can talk about, uh, unless you have more stuff about this, but oh, the, the thing I'll say about this too, just really briefly, sorry, is that all of this, all of Doc Scratch feels, again, so never ending story to me. Um, the the archness of that language yes. is is in the po- the kind of poesy of the language, mm-hmm. very very never ending story. And in the never ending story, it is re- revealed to us that that is a trap. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the beauty of language can be a trap,
0: and it can reveal something wonderful, but it can it also be very dangerous? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I would just add here is that uh, the, the the interesting thing about this uh, devilish like uh, you know narrator character emerging. Uh, also ties into one of the refrains that we've come back to uh, throughout this show uh, that I pulled out of the um, the author commentary about kind of this idea of like these platonic uh, uh, characters mm-hmm. or sort of like the characters as sort of like existing game pieces, right? That Or yeah. like uh, things that can be pushed around, right? That are sort of like independent of, um, th- you know, the choices you make in writing them.
1: Uh mm-hmm. character uh, yeah right uh, are characters independent of the pushing or are they the pushing right and like I-, I think you and i are firmly in the camp of characters are in the pushing yes <laughs> like they exist because of how you move them around they they are not independent of the movie. Right. You know, is an object independent or its relations? Mm-hmm. And for me, an object is its relations. Right.
0: This is actually a, a point that uh, we can touch on. We got a question uh, a while back uh, at query receptacle, where we take questions for the, um, uh, the bonus odes for this show, uh, mm-hmm. query receptacle, is that at query gmail? receptacle at gmail.com. At gmail.com. Com. Um, Mark wrote in and asked us, uh, for a little bit of elaboration. And, uh, essentially what Mark's uh, question boiled down to is because we, we kept saying that, you know, um, uh, the, you know, there are no ideal versions of characters, or, or I can't remember precisely what we said, but the, Mark's question is, you know, how is how is John Egbert, who is this character who exists in my imagination and in the imagination of other readers, obviously, how is uh, John a material thing when he is uh, a character? He is a character. He does not actually exist, and he is therefore kind of an idea that we all seem to have together. Um, mm-hmm. And the clarifying the clarifying point to make there for both you and me. Um and you can add more to this if you like uh but is like your imagination is material your imagination exists in the world uh and it is like you imagine things uh because you see things around you because you have sense experience because you are embedded in a world that has causality and history to it. Um, and it's very common to make this kind of distinction, right? Between like our, our material experience and kind of our inner, like cognitive experience and think of our cognitive experiences and somehow like disembodied or ideal, uh, and just sort of fundamentally philosophically, uh, I think that that's wrong. And I think that, uh, it is important to keep in mind, especially when we're dealing with art and literature and things like this, um, that, All of our ideas are a part of the world and there is a a, it's a mistake, right? Or it's a kind of category error to think that our ideas are transcendent to the world rather than symptomatic of it. Big old dead universe. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: like, that's the most <laughs> depressing way you could possibly put it, Cameron. Thank you. I'm sure we're winning yep. converts left and right. Um. Yep. I don't, I don't, you know what? Here's the thing about, uh,
1: you know, it's the good old-fashioned uh, idealism versus materialism. Go outside and kick a rock
0: and tell me that it's not material. <laughs>
1: boo <laughs> Take
0: that! Uh uh, but yeah, so uh, I bring that up because um, one of the uh, posts that gets dropped in the forum, and this is from a, a Tumblr post, <clears throat> and uh, I'm pulling this out just because I think it's indicative of something. And of course, it shows up here to to so for everyone to mock it. Um, and I don't want to mock it, but I want to sort of like unpack what's happening here. Uh, this this is something that happens during the scene where in the banner panels, uh, Jade and Dave are you know adventuring on her planet. And Jack Moore shows up and they fight him, and then Dave ends up dying. Um, well, a couple of like really uh, interesting things happen. One is that uh, when there's a bit where Jack tries to attack Dave, and Dave grabs Jade and puts him puts her in front of him, and it's it call, it's called Auto Harley, which is a reference to the the fight system in the quote unquote game, which has an auto parry mechanic. But because uh, Jack mm. can't attack Jade, right, it becomes like a block maneuver to put Jade between you and Jack. Um, so this happens there are fans who are like what Dave just Dave just almost got Jade killed like don't take kind of the extra couple minutes to think like oh probably maybe this is something jade has explained to dave right for all of all of the talk that we we give to like characters being things that might exist off screen um there are moments where like this thought doesn't seem to happen but hussie says on Formspring, spring like it's it's better if you just like realize that this is a joke and like he probably knew that this was going to happen and Jade wasn't going to get hurt, but there's like kind of a big blow up there, right? Dave is endangering Jade. Then, uh, uh, Jade tries to shoot Jack, but he phases and like teleports the bullets into Dave and kills Dave. And then everyone's freaking out because Dave is dead, even though we know that there's a resurrection mechanic. But at this moment, well, where these, Mm -hmm. this kind of thing is going on, someone posts on Tumblr, Fuck you, Andrew Hussey. Fuck you. I don't give a fuck if it's yours. Stop fucking with my favorite characters. If you don't want fans to get pissed about uh, you doing something they don't like, you should have kept the goddamn story to yourself. It's not your fucking cow if you put it on show for the world to see. You can put your name on it, claim it, but it's not uh, yours any fucking more. So uh, this is something. This is a slight phenomenon that I have uh, also
1: experienced. Right. They're uh, it, it both uh, in the context of this this very show, and also not in the context of the show. It's just someone who's been writing on the internet for ten years. Um, once you make something that people uh, uh, enough people, you know, I don't know what that number is. It's probably like more than five thousand people. Mm-hmm. I would say, just you know, numbers off the dome here. Once you make something. Uh, that more than that number of people see you know, this kind of person begins to crop up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this type of person, whatever it is, I don't have like a good typology of like interactions on the internet. Um, but they begin to speak to you as if you don't exist, mm-hmm. like as if you are a construct in, in their brain mm-hmm. and they can say whatever they want you to, to you, um, uh, you know we had a weird interaction that happened on the discord even right where uh I like logged on in the morning and someone had left a i don't know five hundred word comment um about like how wrong I was about something that happens in you know in in this very podcast that you're listening to mm-hmm. and uh i and I just responded to it and I was like hey and it was it was uh not that rude, it wasn't a huge fuck you, but it was basically like hey, you're wrong and bad and also like kind of an idiot." Mm-hmm. Uh, and you like don't understand the thing you're looking at, which uh, if you have that opinion uh, about uh, my contributions to the show, keep it to yourself. I don't need to hear about it. But uh, the and, and then but I got on and I was like, hey, uh, you know, I, I I don't really appreciate this. And, uh, you know, uh, it seems like for something that's so dedicated to um, or a community that's so dedicated to thinking through fandom and thinking through the relationships between fandom and creators and blah, blah, blah seems pretty weird that uh, I don't get to have that same relationship, you know, and, I, and can't engage with the comic book the way I would like to or, or uh, webcomic the way I would want to. And then that person never responded to me mm-hmm. again, which I found quite odd. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I do think that there is this – and this has happened to me like a million times in, in a lot of different contexts. This is just one that has to do with the show. But I do think that there, there are people who engage on the internet in a very basic way in which they do not – it's not like they don't consider the humanity behind the person – of the screen or something like that. But I really do think that they have built up an image of some other thing, some sort of ideal image mm-hmm. of uh, of the interlocking thing, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is. And then they are very comfortable keeping abuse or praise or whatever. Right. Uh, you know, some sort of big charged affective reaction. Um And, you know, uh, there's more than a million people reading Homestuck at this point, Mm -hmm. or at least, you know, the hits are happening to that rate. So maybe there's 250,000 and they're checking it a lot or 100,000 and they're checking it a lot. But I can't imagine the level of that that is being heaped on Hussie at this moment, right? As someone who has experienced this phenomenon, but, you know, at 0.0000001% of the volume of users and readers of Homestuck, I cannot imagine how often this was happening to Hussie. Mm -hmm. um in these moments i'm sure probably continues to happen but but at a different rate and probably only by people who are hyper invested in doing that at this point Mm -hmm.
0: yeah and uh the thing that i think is worth pointing out here is you're talking about sort of you know what will the the ideal of the the interlocutor in this case sort of like this ideal or implied vision of hussey um Mm -hmm. is like the to work this backward the logic here is that uh A person creates a story. Within that story, there are characters. When a person uh, puts that story out for public consumption, suddenly that story stops being uh, theirs. Right. So there's actually a little bit of heteroglossia here, right? There's, there's a way in which uh, uh, there's there's always like a dual demand on every word, right? Sort of the social meaning versus like your particular meaning versus like, I don't know, all of the other meanings that might constellate or the in, uh, uh, connotations and so on. Um, but here we're talking about kind of the entire matter of the story. And there's this uh, sort of notion that uh, these characters are things that are extractable from the story or that uh, the story is kind of there as background and the characters exist on top of it. Uh, and that uh, like this idea of fucking with the characters right like the Mm -hmm. author exists to like fuck around with your favorite characters and make your faves have bad times Uh, which is uh, like this is one of the reasons why I think it's important to keep in mind that characters are only the moves in the story because there's no one there that's being hurt like Dave and Jade are not real people they are not actually being fucked with because they only exist as kind of these signifiers within the fiction um and the yeah. the the difficult thing or sort of like the the weird thing about scratch right is that he is a uh, an author who specifically takes on the function of fucking with the characters by virtue of being a character in the story himself right um, mm-hmm. Like that is what he is doing. Like he's he's like beating up Spade Slick and, and so on. Uh, but he's also uh, because of the way he can like manipulate the the MSPA website um not like fucking with the reader right but it 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 again highlights the ability for the interface uh to kind like the fact that the interface is something that may uh solicit your input or your control but it is in fact always structuring your input uh right is the interface that is control and doc scratch as this character is uh in in control of the images and the texts that you are seeing um so, uh, you know, when I get really kind of worked up about uh, Hussy seeming to endorse or like go along with this idea that there are sort of like independent characters uh, in the book commentary, um, part of the reason that is very disappointing for me is because uh, it in fact, sort of folds into precisely this critique, right? Stop fucking around my, mm-hmm. with my favorite characters. And Hussie's response is like, well, actually, it's the author's job to fuck around with the characters rather than kind of like making it clear that... Uh, there are like this is this is a process of construction. Um, there's a, a question that comes up on Formspring uh, at about this time that I think is actually really important uh, to to understanding some of this stuff. Where someone asks Hussy about like all of these characters that you're killing off, like what the hell's going on? Um, and Hussy says. Uh, you know, I'm not hesitant about following through on long-term plans that I made. Uh, most of these characters didn't exist a year ago, uh, and this is explaining, like, why it was okay to, like, like, Hussey had no trouble killing off all of the trolls. Um uh and Hussey says, like, these were characters who came into the story, they had a purpose, uh, and I was here to like or or like and I had, you know, a goal that I was going to pursue with them, and then they were going to be shuffled out of the picture as soon as the the goal had been met, right? As soon as they weren't really uh necessary anymore. Um another approach. Would have been to treat this cast like that of a syndicated cartoon with amusing but basically static lives. Antics happen, hijinks are afoot, everyone is pals, and things are okay forever. Tune in next week. I don't deny there's entertainment value in that, with the content leaning on characters and relationships above anything else. This is actually the reality of this work, echoed by the collective consciousness of fan artists who cast all these characters in a perma-living state, playing out amusing scenarios with. Each each other it's fun doesn't serve the bigger story much not one with a complex architecture headed in a very specific direction but fun nonetheless i would pre- be prioritizing character far beyond the or- overarching story and i'm not doing that certainly not with characters always designed to play a transient role um so when we uh take issue in in whatever previous partisode with hussy talking about like the ideal or the platonic uh uh, versions of characters. I think one of the ways that that language gets developed for Hussey's author commentary is an attempt to mediate, um, like, What Hussey apprehends is kind of like the duties of someone who is making a story and putting it together and like making all of this stuff up uh, versus what you have described as, you know, probably a significant amount of vitriol directed at them uh, that all operates from this idea that, no, these characters are like... Uh, uh they're little figures or like they're people, and like if you fuck with them, then you're fucking with me and mm-hmm. uh uh hussy here we have what was the the specific line the uh the collective consciousness of fan artists right um hussy is trying to uh i think. Take the fact that there are multiple people reading this thing and having a multitude of responses and then make an ideal, right? Say that there's like some sort of ideal or platonic kind of form that encapsulates all of these different data points. Um, And again, uh, more to what I was saying about, you know, uh, uh, idealism and materialism, I think that's putting the cart before the horse. Ideals are symptomatic of materiality and ideals are always going to be an effect. Uh, They're not like you can you could try saying like, well, here's the platonic ideal of Gamzee and you're still going to probably cut something out or miss something. Um, because whatever you're imagining as the platonic ideal of Gamzee is only ever going to be pa- based on like the data that you personally have been able to get into contact with in some way. Does that make sense? Well,
1: yeah. Well, yeah. Can I, can I even solve this down yeah.
0: to, to maybe, a, a,
1: a, a more sharp precept, I yes. guess. Uh, the uh i don't think this theory of narration would be necessary or this theory of story i don't think this theory of story would be necessary without that form spring comment yes right like i i think like talking about uh, ide- ideality versus materialism right i think that is the it is the very uh form of fan response that drives Hussey to working through these ideas about uh, narration essentially so that everyone can be right yes right like uh that is the ultimate form of uh <laughs> like the ideal versus the material is when you have to create a theory of ideality in order to deal with the material mm-hmm. um and and to create that kind of thing right so uh I, I mean, it's what it's, right, I'm not nearly as deep in this as you are, but like just hearing the quotations and hearing the way that this this happens, right? I mean, I, you have to. I think I think the options that are available to Hussey at this point, you know, in, in kind of historical moments because, right, Hussey is a historical human being who develops in time in the same way that the comic itself is mm-hmm. and its values and mores change in the way that you and I have changed. Historical Michael is not contemporary Michael and is certainly not a historical or metaphysical Michael. <laughs> uh, the two other Michaels who... Uh, exist Mm -hmm. the other ends of the quadrant (laughs) right and and so this theorization in and of itself is located in time Mm -hmm. you know it is located in a nexus of material conditions it emerges from them Mm -hmm. Um, you know uh, when when uh, we're early hominids like chilling out in the woods uh, you know 200,000 years ago uh, or, or more than 200,000 years ago, but at least as recent as 200,000 years ago, we didn't need a theory of like subjective idealism <laughs> <laughs> to, in order to like operate in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's only when, uh, you know, Barclay comes around uh, that not only at that point, but Barclay, you know, comes up with that in order to deal with a very particular kind of uh, historical condition. And that is where Samuel Johnson showed up and said, uh, I refute this theory thus and kicked a rock mm-hmm. with, quote, mighty force. <laughs> yes. I uh, got to work that explanation of the quotation all the way back in. So anyway, I don't know. I, th- I think that's quite interesting. Um, and, you know, I think I have a lot of empathy for that position. I don't think I would want to be receiving. Um, I don't think I'd want to be spending 16 hours a day working on something that I then spend another hour a day getting harassed about. Um, I think that would be awful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, like I said a while back, I think I would have just stopped making this
0: thing. Mm-hmm. I I don't think I would have done it. So would I have stopped, I guess, maybe. I like to think that. So,
1: yeah. No, you wouldn't have, Michael. (laughs) You would have doubled down. Mm -hmm. Uh, You would have made your, your, uh, really, you would have created uh, like Fanboy Johnson, (laughs) a character in the comic. Who then, like, falls down, uh, like, trap doors and <laughs> is, like, clonked on the head with a big comical hammer all the
0: time. <laughs> that's what you think I would do? Yeah, definitely. Okay. That's that's the extent of my <laughs> of my ambition.
2: No I, I
1: just, no, I just don't think you would have the patience to... Uh, uh, I think you would deal with it more directly rather than the very roundabout way that Hussey does it. Which is moving back to what we were talking about, right? Which is creating these kind of uh, internal to the comic theories and perspectives of narration and story and kind of capital T truth and not capital T truth, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of um, multiple worlds of uh, interpretation and interaction, which maybe gets us to circumstantial simultaneity. Oh, yeah,
0: definitely. If we want to talk about that. Whoa, it seems like it is time for us to do one of our patented, famous, beloved ad breaks.
2: Oh, no, I lost
0: Cameron. Oh, there he is. Okay. I'm here. Yeah. Cameron's here. I'm here. It must be ad break time. If if we're both here, it's got to be an ad or it's the main podcast. It's one or the other. Uh... If you're listening to Homestuck, made this world. You are listening to something put together by Range Touch. Uh, you can find out more about Range Touch at rangetouch.com, or you can keep up with us uh, with minute-to-minute updates at twitter.com/rangetouch, uh, where we tend to post, you know, links, jokes, images, so on and so forth. Uh, you can also uh, find out more about what we do if you go to our Patreon page, patreon.com/rangetouch. We are fully listener-supported. Uh, we have, you know, uh, these are, these are our ad breaks, no other ads, but these to talk about ourselves and our Patreon. Uh, and if you throw us a little bit of money on Patreon, uh, you get all sorts of cool bonus content that we make for, uh, this show, like. Uh, Homestuck Made This World, but also our other shows. Uh, this is something as small as like getting the notes that we do for Game Studies Study Buddies, the show where Cameron and I talk through books of academic game studies, and in the most recent episode, I think relative to when this is posted, we even talk a little bit about uh, Homestuck, because that we, we, we talked through a book about the formation of D&D and uh, uh, the development of the idea of role-playing in the tabletop space, so if you are interested in that aspect of of homestuck then you might be really interested in hearing uh, some more context around those uh, ideas in their history uh, we also do just King things where we read through the books of Stephen King in publication order and talk about them and do some kind of um, big level like macro analysis uh, very similar kind of to what we're doing with homestuck and we have just King things bonus episodes where we talk through films that are based on or related to Stephen King properties and we also discuss uh, films related to homestuck uh, we've talked Talked about, for instance, Con Air, the big one, but uh, when you're listening to this, the most recent Homestuck Made This World bonus episode that you could get uh, via Patreon is on 1991's Hook, where we are investigating the origins of Rufio and the Peter Panification of Tavros, and what that means and what's going on. Uh, But finally, uh, one thing that really helps us out... Um, you know, aside from, uh, giving us directly money to, to help us continue to do all this work, uh, is to leave us reviews, uh, review us on your favorite podcast platform. Give us those good reviews, put eyes on us. And if you review us on Apple podcasts and leave a five-star review that is, uh, funny or amusing in some way, then there is a good chance that Cameron will read it on air. Cameron, you got some reviews for us? Yes. I don't believe I've read this one before. I, I,
1: the, I have trouble remembering which ones I've read on the air and which ones I've just read. But <clears throat> this is from Wireframe Wife. This podcast rules. Please read my story. I thought Homestuck was just a webcomic as obscure as anything until I wore a god-tier shirt symbol, or I'm sorry, a god-tier symbol shirt in public, and someone recognized it. Mortifying. Five stars. Thank, <laughs> you. Thank Great. you. Thank you so much, uh, Wireframe is, Wife. Wireframe Wife. Okay. This is from September Crow. Oh, this is the title of it. Oh, so this is what they were talking about. A couple years ago when Ball was reaching a larger audience, I was hanging out in their general Discord channel. Lots of conversations going on in there, but one kept popping up and people were getting annoyed and heated. Turns out they were talking about Homestuck and the mods had to ban discussion on Homestuck. Thanks to y'all reading Homestuck. I tried reading with y'all and gave up. I now know what the heck they were talking about. and Why it did indeed need a ban. <laughs> Truly a gift. <laughs> Five stars. Thanks so much. So yeah, you read, uh, leave a five-star review and I got some other couple ones too. We, we got to keep a couple in the bag in case the five-star re- re- new ones don't don't come out. But uh, yeah. Uh, leave us a five-star review, uh, leave us a fun little story, and I'll read it on the show. Yeah. If and... it's not five stars, I definitely <laughs> won't read it, so you got to leave that five-star review.
0: <laughs> Cameron's not wasting his time any reading any reviews that are less than five stars. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I mean, circumstantial simultaneity is Doc Scratch's term for the fact that Homestuck reuses art assets.
1: And, and it's, again, uh, it's, it's uh, <laughs> you know, um uh content for nothing right right uh so doc Scratch comes up with this it's on thirty eight ten uh circumstantial simultaneity is a concept more complex than its temporal analog and is valuable for examining the properties of paradox space, so doc Scratch is saying that the very metaphysics of the world as we have been presented them depend on circumstantial simultaneity, so this mm-hmm. is kind of backfilling something that was always true. Mm-hmm. As long as paradox space was true, which has been always. Mm-hmm. And so we can now go back and read it. So back to the quotation. It is the agent responsible for the major cosmic event, which pre extinction Alternians came to refer to as the great undoing. The same concept rules the innumerable lesser events by which this critical moment shall be catalyzed, including the break, my employer's arrival the detonation of a very powerful bomb and my own death. It is an abstraction weaving together the fortunes of otherwise perfectly disparate chronologies, such as those bound to a pair of distinct sessions. It is not fully comprehensible to a mortal mind and the length I will go to, to explain it to you will not extend beyond this sentence. All right? So we get a lot of stuff here. Number one is this, right? Like here's a concept deal with mm-hmm. it. Go, go fan theorize it, uh, uh, theorize it about it on your own time. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, it's an agent. Mm-hmm. It is the agent responsible, mm-hmm. right? Which, which implies that it has some sort of end goal or agency or it is active mm-hmm. in the world, right? It's not just merely a quality of the world. Um, and, and three, right? The, the, the fact that now we are given the obligation as good readers to go back and discover all the moments of circumstantial simultaneity, which is already happening in the fan discourse, right? Mm-hmm. People are already doing that. And yet this is now uh, that, you know, an authorial figure within the comic saying, well, if you weren't paying attention to that, you were now missing parts of this comic or you are now missing parts of the content that has already been laid there. And it's a beautiful thing because it creates, it, you know, it, this is lost again. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I keep bringing up lost and we are going to have to do lost as a bonus episode soon. Uh, but th- this is the same maneuver, right? You, you bring up something that has mild resonance for the majority of people, and now they will go back and they will review every frame mm-hmm. <laughs> to find it anywhere, you know. Here's a thought experiment, right? For people who are a little bit like suspicious of the way that we've, you know, um, put these forward. You can do this with anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I could be like, okay, I've taken over writing uh I don't know, what's the pop- Westworld. I've taken over writing Westworld. I what what no one has known until now, I create a character who says the the way that you understand the true robots from the false robots is their double shadows. Dun, dun, dun. And you don't give any more context than that. People will go back and look at every single person and determine if and when they have two shadows. Mm-hmm right like this is like a thing of fan production i've i've been around in fan spaces and seen fans do things and watched interpretation videos and done media analysis long enough to tell you you can make anything like this up and someone will go and do it mm-hmm. um you know this is the, the this is the uh especially well i'll just Without going too deep into it, it's the apophenic function of reading, right? <laughs> we are good at finding patterns. Yes. Um, you know, this is Darius Kazemi's uh, one of his big things that he loves to do with, you know, Twitter bots and with um, kind of generative fiction work uh, back when Darius was doing more of that work is that uh, we're very good at apophenia. We, we like it, we like finding patterns. We, we find that human beings uh, seem uh, excited, or at least a big portion of us seem excited when we recognize something. Mm-hmm. Uh, that looks like something else or interacts like something else. And you can do this with literally anything. Mm-hmm. And so this is just a really good moment, I think, of seeing how that has worked in Homestuck a few different times. And I, you know, I keep seeing people doing this. Like I see fans now in our Discord doing this, mm-hmm. um, looking for the simultaneity or doing the class spec thing mm-hmm. um and and rereading and reinterpreting. I don't read all the spoilers for it, but I know what they're doing because they label it. Right. Good job labeling your spoilers. If you are listening to this right now, and you're on the Discord, you're one of the few people who don't label their spoilers, label your
0: spoilers. Please. This is me coming at you in a different medium. (laughs) We have, we've gotten more people in the Discord lately, and not all of you are reviewing those rules that we pinned carefully.
1: (laughs) Right. So this is us telling you, in a different medium, (laughs) review the
0: rules, label your spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) the point that you could do this with all sorts of things uh, I I think is well founded uh, because the other thing that this makes me think of of course is someone who historically is getting ready to go into grad school uh, is that this is the function of ideology as well right or like how Zizek describes how ideology works uh, which is that it is something that presents it like it's something that emerges in history that presents itself as true and one of the ways it becomes ideology is that it makes a claim to having always been true Right. That it makes it, yeah. uh, uh, it it works its way out of history, becomes ahistorical, historical uh, so we can. Yeah, there's that naturalization of ideology. Yes, exactly. Um, and so I'm not this is not me saying that, like, and Homestuck is like, I don't know, I uh, do uh, uh, doing nefarious ideological things to you, uh, this is me saying, like, hey, here's a good way that if you can, like, cotton on to this in fictional stories uh, when this sort of move happens, you can start noticing when it's being deployed in, like, the news media politically. You can start noticing when people do real-life retcons, right? <laughs> um,
1: <laughs>
2: which happens, yes. right? You
1: know, it, it it's extremely regular. Uh, you know, the... Uh also a historical moment, right? You know, uh basically uh, after 9-11 and particularly the invasion of Iraq, uh or, or Iraq, sorry, my my Southernism always comes out mm-hmm. around Iraq-Iraq questions. Um, but right, this happened in real time, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think that maybe, you know, to, to be historical for a moment, I think probably the two of us in our intensive um uh focus on moments in which real life retcons happen and are like Hyper focus on this in this comic comes from the fact of living through that. Yes. Of of watching, you know, uh, the more uh uh I don't know, PRable term, right? Of watching consent get manufactured in real time changed my way of thinking about how stories and narratives work. Mm-hmm. Right? Like just just blankly, that is just a fact. Yes, uh,
0: that, is, <laughs> right. that is historical and important to me. We we are products of of the W. Bush years. You and I. Yes, <laughs> right, yeah, right. Like a hundred percent.
1: It just happened. Mm-hmm. Um. And right now, I teach students who were born after that moment. And when we learn about the Iraq War, I have to walk through this, and I have to be like, look, we look what we watched on TV when it happened, and we celebrated watching Baghdad be bombed live on CNN. Right. Like this happened. I was in. You know, I was in school when it my my science teacher turned off or or stopped doing science for the day and we just watched live footage of striking a city with civilians in it right Mm -hmm. like the 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 quality of uh what my life was or what i thought that was okay and good in the world Began to shift around me in a very powerful way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I just think that we, and you know, I've just watched too many Errol Morris documentaries after that, <laughs> <laughs> to, you know, uh, to, to not think that the way that these things happen in, in fictional situations, the way that these happen, you know, the kind of broad structural transformations that occur within stories, whether they are stories we tell ourselves about the world we live in or entirely kind of fictional stories, those things have stakes. And, and more importantly, those strategies. The shift around they are not wholly attached to only fictional or non fictional or whatever things mm-hmm. um, you know uh, that the there is resonance in form across media, and one of those media are the things that that govern our lives mm-hmm.
0: um so working uh, circumstantial simultaneity <laughs> back to something else because I think one of the other things that to right, note right, about Right. This, that's yeah, not, yeah
1: circumstantial <laughs> simultaneity was not all the things I just said yeah. but uh, uh, the, the reading strategy that
0: we're encouraged to do uh, is this kind of ideological move. Yes, right. It's a, a circumstantial sim- simultaneity is a way of seeing how this move could be uh, uh, instilled or inculcated. Um, but it also does a couple of other things that I think are really weird. Um, so... Uh, One thing that it implies is something that we've hammered on a couple of times throughout this show, which is that like time doesn't exist or like it doesn't exist in a a normal linear fashion that there is something. I I know for a fact that one of the ways that this gets talked about within the fandom as sort of analogous to like uh, Young's idea of synchronicity of sort of Mm -hmm. um, right a causal like connections uh, that sort of derive from. Uh, you know, like a collective unconscious, uh, uh, you know, thinking of how Hussey pulled out the the collective consciousness of of the reader base and of fan artists in that form spring response. Um, this is, again, one of the reasons where I think, uh, or one of the reasons that I think uh, getting into uh, these big, airy, idealist moves of like, oh, there's a realm of unfettered creativity that we're all kind of like drawing from um, can be kind of a distraction to what is actually happening, uh, which is that, Like, no, we're embedded in history and coming up with ideas and responding to each other's ideas. Uh, Anyway, uh, uh, circumstantial simultaneity then uh, suggests that you know everything that is happening in Homestuck uh like when you see those callbacks there's some like grand metaphysical way in which one these kind of visual structures are naturally propagating themselves out through paradox space um but then two uh that like when you see these echoes or these like visual or formal echoes um that is just like suggesting how uh i mean to put it a different way scratch himself says uh, when he starts, like, reusing art assets in the way that Hussey reuses art assets, uh, he says, you know, everything in Paradox Space uh, has already happened, right? There is nothing, like, nothing new can happen. Uh, Everything that happens is a reproduction of something that happened in the Alpha timeline or in some sort of offshoot timeline, right? There is There is nothing new under the sun. No novelty mm-hmm. can emerge. Right. Um, and this is a way, uh, at least partially, I think of, uh, getting at the fact that I think Hussey is deeply aware of, uh, that this entire comic has already been written, uh, in fandom speculation. Mm -hmm. Right. And I am not, I am not exaggerating. I have read the something awful thread and I have like specific notes that I've been taking. I probably won't get too deep into them, uh, on this show. They might show up in the book probably. Um, but literally, uh, the back end of this comic has been written through fan speculation. Like people have been like, Hey, wouldn't it be funny if, or I bet this is going to happen. And you know, not all of the details are precisely right. There are still things that certain people haven't get or certain things that people haven't guessed, but like the big moves of everything that happens in Homestuck are already on the table in fandom speculation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this seems to be Hussey's way of managing kind of uh, the knowledge of what we were just talking about that Hussey is writing the story in real time, has a way that they are trying to like angle it, right? Something that they're uh, aiming for. And uh, some sort of anxiety, maybe, about knowing that people have already called my shots. Uh, and Hussey actually gives a form spring response, saying that like, yeah, when I when I have a reveal that's coming up that I know is going to be pretty obvious, or I'm pretty sure people have guessed it, I try to twist it in a way uh, to make it un like it's still the same reveal, but I add like an unguessable element.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Wow. Um. So, uh, and I think that's really interesting, right? Because it's, it, it becomes another way of hussy gesturing toward like the collective consciousness of the fans, right? We are, we are all kind of, you've already written this with me, right? Now it's just an issue of like watching it unspool, um, except this is put in tension with the fact that it is a comic that is being assembled in history and has like, you know, days between updates and is like responding to fandom speculation in specific terms. Terms Or like incorporates new ideas that emerge out of the fandom, which I hope to be able to talk about, uh, near the end of this episode when we, we can do some, some, some fan art stuff. Um, the other thing then about, uh, circumstantial simultaneity and, uh, time not existing is that it is Dave's nightmare. Uh, when he talks about you to touch on what you were saying earlier, uh, where you can get a lot of depth out of Dave, uh, we have Dave describing his nightmare, saying that he's, uh, you know, I'm just quoting here. This is from page 3879. Uh, I was in this dark place, surrounded by this big flock of crows. Well, obviously, I knew the birds were just uh, black screaming, Sky dongs, just hear me out. I kept dying. Uh, There kept being these traps, like I would go one way and get my head chopped off, or go another way and get stabbed or whatever. And every time I died, the dream reset itself, and I was standing there alive and ready to try to escape again. But each time, I would be watching myself from the vantage point of a different crow, like I was the crow all squawking around in circles like a macabre, flapping douche. And I would always watch myself try to do something different to dodge the trap, but I always ended up dead." So Dave, uh, this is, you know, a dream bubble, but presumably at some point in the historical past relative to the comic, Dave in fact had this nightmare. And here's the moment where you realize like, Oh, what the game has done is put Dave into his nightmare because this is how his time travel powers work. Uh, right. right? He, he time travels. Uh, if he does something wrong, he dies and he has to deal with the fact that he has like created a dead version of himself. Um, Mm -hmm. But then, sort of, one of the results of it is that there's this Alpha Dave uh, who's moving down the main timeline, who is constantly seeing, like, be- being made aware of the dead versions of himself, uh, who is, like, you know, circumstantially, simu- like, his existence in some way often ends up being predicated on the fact that there are these dead Daves, right? His circumstances are simultaneous with his own death. Um, and this is related to uh, uh, actually some Scott McCloud comics that you linked me to a couple months ago. I don't know how you found these um but i was very excited uh this was a, a comics uh experiment that scott mcleod did called choose your own carl
2: mm,
1: i think maybe it came with in the discord mm. i think someone okay. posted about the discord and actually looked at it and i was yeah. like oh we need to know about this
0: yeah uh, so how these work and i'll probably like link this uh in the show notes or like on the um art tumblr homestuck made this fan um but how this worked is that uh mcleod wrote a comic using reader commands. And it starts with this guy named Carl who is uh, talking with a character who we eventually learn is his mom. But the first panel is uh, the woman saying, promise me you won't drink and drive, Carl. And he says, I promise. Then to the right, in the way that you would traditionally read like an English comic from left to right, he's in his car, he's throwing pills in his mouth. And he says, she didn't say anything about drugs. Uh, And then he sees a giant pink elephant and then the elephant's like foot comes down in his car, and then it's, rest in peace, Carl, the end. Now, if you read downward, there are other panels that progress in a different direction. And what happened was uh, McLeod uh, took input from uh, people who were reading his website on, what does Carl do next? And mm-hmm. so he started writing out the comic from, like, one panel starts it, but then the plot goes in two different directions— but then, as you read uh, the whole thing, because there are, like, I think six seeds that he started with, um, the, the like, continuities start lapping together as they split off from one another. So there are, uh, like, actual paths that you can read through that overlap with other kind of, like, Carl continuities. Um, but most of them, by and large, end with Carl dying, right? The ones that are endpoints are always Carl's tombstone, R.I.P. Carl, the end. Uh, And so on the one hand, we have Carl, this character who uh, uh, is sort of a kind of visual model for the situation that Dave is in. What is Dave's nightmare? Um, But then also we have kind of this fantastic media illustration of what circumstantial simultaneity is, which is uh, when there are multiple comic images showing discrete moments in time on one page and you can see Mm -hmm. them all at once. This is, this is neat. This is why I like Homestuck because it is so useful for illustrating like how media can talk about themselves and to teach you how to like notice these things.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Seems neat. Well, um, I promised some, some fan art stuff. Uh, so when I said, you know, Homestuck kind of exists within history, uh, one of the, one of the things that we might lose, uh, if you go to page three, eight, four, eight, Cameron, uh, can you do that mm-hmm. for me? I can. Okay. Okay. Uh this is right after uh Teresi has uh killed uh Vriska and the other trolls show up. Um and you the shot is uh Vriska, like Vriska's computer in the far background, Vriska's corpse in front of it. Oh, we didn't mm-hmm. even talk about the fact that like when Vriska dies and like we get that shot of like her corpse lying on the ground with like the ghostly Nick Cage superimposed in the background. Right. It's <laughs> Good, good, classic Homestuck. Like here's this extremely controversial character. Uh, she finally meets her end. Nicholas Cage joke. Yep. Um, then in front of that we have Carcat and Terezi. Does Carcat look interesting to you there, Cameron? He looks like a little gremlin. Yeah, he's like he's in the he's in the far, far distance. He's like a little uh-huh. scribble drawing. Uh, yeah. The the fans see this, uh, how it looks, right? One way of uh, parsing this image visually is that it looks like Car Cat's not wearing a shirt because he doesn't have arms. He's drawn in kind of that sprite mode. It, it does look like, like that, yeah. Yeah, it looks kind of like Car Cat's just like a head on a giant pair of legs. Right. And this... Yes. <laughs> he has no arms here. <laughs> and this gives birth to, like, overnight, in, in, in rapid, rapid uh, uh, time, uh, a thing called Pants Cat. Which oh, is no. this meme that just like overtakes the fandom. Uh and there's so much fan art <laughs> presented uh or like produced of <laughs> like what if what if this was Karkat's character design? What if this is just what he looked like? So I'm showing you just uh-huh, yeah, some of good. these.
1: They're very funny.
0: <laughs> yep. Here's one of Carcat and Terezi uh as as their weird <laughs> leg pants people. Um uh, I thought I had another one that I can't find now. Oh wait, no, here's one that's a uh, car and gamsey in this style <laughs> um, so, yeah, like that's just you know something something to point out, like fun little little thing that happened with with the fandom um. And Hussey was, like, uh, retweeting this art or, like, posting links to this art on Twitter. So this is another thing that Hussey is doing now. Hussey's on Twitter and kind of, um, through Twitter, sometimes spotlighting particular fan productions. Mm -hmm. Um, At one point during this reading, Hussey links to a uh, tin deck um Tin Deck if you don't remember was a website where you could just uh, record audio and upload it and Homestuck was extremely popular on Tin Deck in fact uh, I haven't mentioned it I think up until now but like once the Homestuck fandom got a hold of Tin Deck they just started recording like their own read-throughs of dialogue and so on uh mm-hmm. to the point that like Homestuck was for months and at this point historically has been for months the top tag on Tin Deck at this point finally Tindec is like okay homestuck is its own genre of of thing now so people can really filter this out because wow right um, so hussie uh, links to like a uh a uh, a rap that octopimp did um mm-hmm. call octopimp being a, a a homestuck fan at this time and today he works as a voice actor uh but uh he did a song a, a rap song called uh everyday i'm hussying. I hate that. Yeah. Um do you want to listen to this Cameron? <sighs> I, it'll be good content, so I guess I will. Okay. Let me uh let me just uh pull this up I'm on... not happy about it, but I will. <laughs> okay. Um so yeah, this is Octo Pimps uh song everyday i'm hussying. Uh, or Hussian, I should say uh Octopimp is also doing his own vac- background vocals uh in his Gamzee and Tavros voices uh-huh yeah so uh just check this out Cameron I, think, I feel like we're going to cry <laughs> <laughs> all right okay
1: so these are hold on I'm yeah. pausing here so these are voices that that uh quote unquote Octopimp Mm-hmm. Uh has been doing for a minute at this point
0: yeah like uh, a, a popular thing uh, particularly on 10 deck uh, in the homestuck mm-hmm. fandom is to uh do read-throughs of like the comic right here's like uh, a Carcat and Terezi conversation and i do a car cat and my friend does a Terezi, and we record it and we upload it um right. but then certain people become bit known in the fandom for doing like popular like there's a person who does a really popular car cat voice right and uh, uh, Octopimp gets popular for having like you know these Gamzee and Tavros voices there are other uh, uh, characters that uh, he voices Um, but like this is this is kind of one of the ways that uh, he makes his name is that he becomes like people are like oh man this is like this is my canonical voice for such and such a character Um, and now and now uh, (laughs) there's this song Okay. Now, now I will. Assume. Oh, I should say the other thing. It's like, it wasn't always read throughs from the comic. A lot of it is like, uh, uh, the little fan fix that you can write in your head where it's like, what if these mm-hmm. two characters had a conversation about this? And so like, once you've got your, your foothold, right, here's the character that I can do really well. You can mm-hmm. do like, here's, here's my car cat reacting to this YouTube video. Right. That right, type of thing. Right. right?
1: Yeah, very, very common. I mean, within the impressions community, yes. You know, it's like content. That's the whole thing. You know, like what if blank saw
2: or reacted to blank? All right, so now I'm listening again. Yeah. Okay. I'm skipping forward. Yeah. (laughs) Not going to dig the spoken
0: word.
1: Okay. Okay, I'm hearing it. I I find this so embarrassing
0: to listen to that I can't keep listening to it. So this is what I mean when I said that we have sort of undeniably entered this moment of kind of homestuck cringe, which. Uh, yes, I there is no word. Thank God the word cringe was invented. for yes.
2: the,
1: the way that I feel about so much of this kind of thing. Mm hmm.
2: Yeah,
0: and I, uh, you know, like cringe is, I think, a normal part of existing in the world and growing up and all that, right? And some people
1: really enjoy it, and some people, some people enjoy it ironically. Mm -hmm. They like the cringe part. Some people just like the thing. You can like whatever you want. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm not the arbiter of who likes to like what. Mm I, I am just saying, I find it difficult to listen to on a basic level. Yeah, yeah. So, um. And It's not helped that it is a uh, parody of "Every Day I'm Hustling," which, if you were not around at the time, was infinitely parodied. Yes, um, it's kind of the post moment of "Lazy Sunday," if you remember that from mm-hmm. uh, SNL, you know, in which like Chris Parnell and uh, Andy Samberg go oh, yeah. going to the movies mm-hmm. in, in like a, in like a rap, like an overdone rap. Mm -hmm. The early big Lonely Island hit, you know, uh, a digital digital short done by those people. Mm -hmm. And it really kind of broke the world open as far as like, oh, I could do that. Um, And it's this nascent moment in the Internet in which everyone thought that they could be Weird Al and like epic raps of all Mm -hmm. sorts were were around. But in particular, particularly for white people, and I don't know why this is the case, but particularly for white people uh every day i'm hustling really broke the <laughs> broke the damn on everyone feeling like they could uh make a cool rap mm-hmm. and i don't have an explanation for that but that did happen it did happen uh, it was to strange. the extent that when i was in high school which is like when this was occurring when every day i'm hustling was like really big mm-hmm. um i think that's when i was in high, i'm pretty sure that's when i was in high school um but uh no no i'm sorry i'm 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 conflating two things i'm conflating that in ride and dirty Oh, uh, mm-hmm. Which uh, I think I may, might have said this on the show before, but many like white high schoolers who I went to high school with got riding dirty like in big letters on their trucks. Yes, like mm-hmm. like three or four people did that. In oh high yeah, school with a very small high school. So I, I don't know. This was like a moment where everyone kind of felt like they could rap and they could riff, and uh, you know what we might call broad fan productions were mm-hmm. hooting and hollering and going wild.
0: Yeah. Uh. So. Uh. Y- yeah. The the the. I think it's interesting to consider this cringe aspect because the other thing that happened during this reading is the emergence of a new meme, a kind of like inter-fandom meme uh, that I recall being very important. And I'm going to link you to uh, what I recall being the first version of this that I saw and might be the the most well-known version, but this, you know, spills out into other things. Uh, This is uh, the first instance of let me tell you about Homestuck. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, Oh, interesting.
0: Yeah. So this is uh, Mm. it's an image taken at a convention. It's some people cosplaying. We've got like a Jasper Sprite, a Nana Sprite, a John and a Rose cosplayer. Um, All of these uh, people uh, uh, are white um, and they're like posing for a picture. And there is a like convention center security guard, a black man walking behind them. Uh, and the caption, the the image is broken into two, right? The first one is what I just described, and it says, let me tell you. And then the bottom half is a zoom in on the security guard saying about Homestuck. And he's, like, looking into the camera, like, looking kind of side-eye at this scene uh, with uh, uh, an expression of judgment or distaste. Right. Right? Um, and... Uh, how this works in uh, kind of a general sense, right, is that the the idea is... Well, so this reads in one way, which is like, man, these Homestuck people sure are weird. But then the way that Let Me Tell You About Homestuck uh, becomes processed by the fandom is like a... Uh, it's something to rally around, right? Uh, there is a sense, and this is a thing that I think, um, actually falls out of a lot of cringe analysis, right? People who, um, talk broad strokes about cringe. I haven't done a lot of reading on this. So like, I, I may be missing something. I'm probably missing something. Um, but particular, this type of cringe of like, oh, these people are doing that in public. Uh, let me tell you about Homestuck is a way of being like, yeah, I'm doing that in public. Right? I'm going to tell you about Homestuck. I'm going to be the loudest, most obnoxious Homestuck in the world because, uh, in some way, right, like, the, the effortless invincibility of my early teenagerdom or whatever, uh, it gives me kind of license to, uh, kind of embrace these weird parts of myself and, uh, take some kind of joy in the fact that I know I'm doing something ridiculous and people are maybe judging me for it but like I can act like I don't care, right? I can I can actually be in maybe a space where it doesn't care um, different versions of this image get reproduced uh, because you know, unsurprisingly scenes like this don't stop happening at conventions, uh, but it is very frequently a bunch of cosplayers who are usually white with some sort of convention uh, center service worker in the background uh who is uh not white and like there there is something to drill down on there about like uh the racial politics of fandom um at least especially in this time right and and sort of like uh who get who is like sort of in on the joke versus who gets to uh who gets to and or has to be like quote-unquote normal right um who who is being used as kind of like the uh a baseline expression of like the other or the outsider to the fandom.
1: Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting.
0: Yeah. Um, but I just, yeah, I feel like I need to talk about that because eventually we do get, I don't know if this is even still around anymore, but there's like a fan song that gets produced called, let me tell you about homestuck. That's all about like insisting on talking to someone about homestuck, even when they don't want to hear it. Um, and so, like, that's that's a thing that is interesting to me here, that kind of uh, the perversity of it, right? Of knowing that I am doing something obnoxious and annoying, I'm being weird and cringe in public, and that gives me a strength that you don't understand because I'm just, like, living with the bit. Hmm. I would simply not live with the bit. <laughs>
1: Uh, other stuff going on here. I do like all the hijinks at the end of the, uh, or in the, uh, what do you call it? Um, chat logs mm-hmm. for this one. They're like, uh, people picking up other people's computers and whatnot. Yeah. Talking to each other. We get some like, uh, very trolly, uh, melodrama going mm-hmm. on here at the end. Mm-hmm. Did oh. you really like her? Yes.
0: Right. Carcat <laughs> asking John about Riska. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh. Yeah. That melodrama. I mean, it's it's good stuff, and it, it, and it starts hitting so hard, right? And something we should maybe clarify here, because I think this is a, a thing. Like, it's I've sensed it out there in the world, in the collective consciousness of the listener base. Um. Some great disturbance in the listener base. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when we say melodrama, uh, we don't mean that disparagingly. Uh, melodrama for us is like a generic term uh, that describes like a certain mode of uh, affective or emotional engagement Um, and I think there's really good melodrama going on here especially when we do get to these like disconnected asynchronous little plot lines but all of these conversations even if it's between like the cat girl and the weird like cat princess ghost and about uh, this recently dead Vriska and this like John who's sort of in denial about being dead Uh, All of these really heavy themes about, like, love and death start getting layered on top of each other uh, in a way that I think actually works really, really well and really sells. Like, it it reads uh, with a kind of gravity and thickness uh, in in the archive um, that I think was kind of easy to miss uh, when these things were being posted uh, uh, serially. Mm -hmm. The land of gravity and thickness. (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) Uh, other stuff that's happening here, something I thought was really interesting that we don't have to get too deep into, but it's a thing that's worth thinking is that, uh, Vriska is a manipulator. hmm Uh, and I think we generally recognize that manipulation is bad. Mm-hmm. Like, she's doing a bad thing to John with all this manipulation, pretending to like John and blah, 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 all that stuff, all, all that teen drama. Mm-hmm. But in the, in the uh, 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 you know, alongside that, within those manipulations are seemingly moments of real emotional development for Vriska for where we get, like, these authentic thoughts from her. hmm Right? So, like, when she was like, ah, you know, I just, and that happens here, too, right? Of, like, maybe once all this is over and we're, like, out of the Alternian thing, then I could, like, be the person I want to be. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of it and people have even talked about this in the discord that that Vriska as a person who does bad stuff, but maybe doesn't want to or Vriska as a person who does bad stuff, but feels uh, conflicted about it is like a powerful emotional connection for them at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, because she she's three dimensional in a very serious way at this point. Right. Mm-hmm. Like she's reflecting on her actions and all this kind of stuff. And so there's this thing where there's like manipulation. And yet in the moment of manipulation, there is like quote-unquote, authentic discussion that's Mm -hmm. happening that really gives us flavor of the character. I wonder, this is a a thing that's worth considering, it hasn't really showed up here, but it might be worth thinking about at some point in the future, is that Doc Scratch is also a manipulator, but Mm -hmm. are there moments of authentic development and authentic reflection within that manipulation? Mm Mm-hmm. Because Nothing homestuck loves more than giving you a structure and then putting it everywhere now. We have a term for it <laughs> right like uh, Circumstantial simultaneity also holds that it's not just the reuse of art. It's the reuse of situation Yes, and the reuse of forms that mm-hmm. kind of go everywhere right what what I might call a diagram
0: right and like structural um, parallels like the fact that like both Vriska and Rose are heroes of light and so right. that become right that this thing that is just like it's like saying ah like I, I participated in a raid and wow and there were you know two rogues in those two different raids and that's circumstantial simultaneity right but uh, uh mm. I'm not to disparage it too much but like that's that's sort of the yeah. idea is that any any parallel can be significant underneath the aegis of circumstantial simultaneity
1: yeah right uh you, you know uh the I cast fireball at the darkness uh-huh. <laughs> right. And the other party also cast fireball ah circumstantial simultaneity, so who knows uh but uh I think that's in, I think that's worth maybe paying attention to mm-hmm. uh and maybe the last thing we can talk about here unless you've got a whole lot of other th- stuff to go through but uh what about uh literally doc scratch uh beating Jack Moore over the head with homestuck?
0: <laughs> Uh, I mean, what do you think about that, right? Well, I think that's quite interesting and odd, don't you? Yeah, it's it's rather fascinating that we have this author character who is, or narrator, I guess, right? Like the devilish uh, alternative author who is trying to get this character to do what he wants by beating the character over the head with the story that the author character claims to be in control of. And it's uh, really interesting Scratch doing that because it's another way that it literalizes precisely uh, this, what I have talked about and and complained about, this idea that like what an author does is like manipulate or screw with the characters in order order to get them to do certain things. It's also interesting that, uh, you know, like what Doc Scratch wants is for uh, Jack Noir, or rather Spade Slick, uh, to kill Snowman. Which we know would end the universe And we also know that Even despite the fact that uh, Nor slash Slick and the Black Queen slash Snowman Historically and always consistently Right, circumstantially simultaneously uh, (sighs) Have this kind Of um, Tense relationship It does here culminate in what the uh, uh, Comic calls a hate snog Yeah, there's a lot of
1: uh, snogging a uh-huh. hut uh, occasionally it is actually really interesting to me that the comic itself um, I don't know a few episodes ago basically like alternia and after really starts drifting away from like a historical specificity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know you could be forgiven for not knowing that when this came out. Uh, but then we get, uh, we get, we, we get a snog, mm-hmm. which, t- you know, uh, Tumblr is going at this point. Mm-hmm. That is c- confirmed. I now know that because <laughs> uh, no no American would use the word snog before uh, mm-hmm. Tumblr. We all know that. That's a fact. But also uh, there, there's another phrase, uh, sloppy makeouts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's the early 2010s, of course.
0: Yep. No one would have said
1: that before the early 2010s. <laughs> in a published thing. But anyway, quite interesting.
0: Yeah, no, and we've like uh, uh left all of that on on some cliffhangers. We don't know exactly what Doc Scratch's game is, and that was kind of my intent. Uh, You know, I I could have stopped this right when we could have uh, started moving through the panels on our own, right? Um, But I Mm -hmm. decided that I wanted to kind of stop this in the middle uh, where all of these plot lines are kind of hanging on a thread because at least from my perspective, that reproduces a little bit um, some of what it felt like to read this serially where you did only get this and kind of a drip feed. And even when you did like get that panel's like... uh, like in a, a sub panels, like little story was completed. It was still n- not done because it was going to be completed on, you know, uh, uh additional like main pages that had their own sub panels, right there. There's like a weird granularity or splintering off of, uh, the narrative here, um, that I don't know for the heck of it. I was like, yeah, let's, let's, let's reproduce that. Let's, let's le- leave people on a cliffhanger. Um, mm-hmm. One other thing that I do think actually we should talk about because it is important uh, is this is the same set of readings wherein we start seeing a move toward what we would, what we might call like the corporatization of Homestuck Mm -hmm. Um, or at the very least kind of Mm. um, the uh, Homestuck starts policing its brand identity in a way that it has not been before, by which I mean Andrew Hussey is. So on May 28th of 2011 uh, through uh, Lexi, uh, Alexander Douglas, who's on the art team, um, Hussey puts out a, uh, a message to Tumblr saying that uh, you can no longer like sell Homestuck slash MSPA stuff without Hussey's permission. Uh, mm-hmm. And there is a huge amount of backlash because this is like uh, the way this is formulated; it encompasses like fan art uh uh creating props for cosplay uh putting up patterns to help people create props for cosplay uh all this sort of oh, stuff wow. yeah right it's just it's literally like it starts out as just like n- no no don't sell mspa merch without andrew hussey's permission hmm. um um Which, uh, uh, makes a lot of fans really upset because they would like to have, like, the ability to get commissioned for Homestuck art. And eventually, within, within a couple weeks, or maybe a couple months, it's unclear because of the way that Tumblr does timelines, um, Mm -hmm. the, this does get relaxed to the point where it's like, yes, okay, you can do, like, a private commission, um, and, but, like, don't, don't, like, do your Homestuck fan art and then start selling prints of that, Right. Uh, Which is all, like, perfectly reasonable, Um, but it does sort of demonstrate one of the, like, pitfalls or problems that is just going to necessarily arise if you've created such a popular media property in this context. Uh, Because Hussey eventually goes to Formspring and, like, explains to everyone how, like... Uh, you know, I'm not going to, like, I'm not going to police, like, your personal commissions, but I don't want you selling merchandise with, like, my characters on it without my permission. Um and, uh, you know, the, the, the example that they give is like, you know, even if it, 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 you are, you are kidding yourself, if that, uh, if you commission someone to draw you like your favorite Pokemon, like you are kidding yourself, uh, that, uh, in doing that, you are not costing Nintendo money, um, Which is, like, just, this is another way of showing, like, ah, 10 years on, like, people would have a a lot of thoughts about using Nintendo as the example there. Um, But Hussey Mm -hmm. is basically correct, and it's sort of, like, goofy to just be like, well, you know, kids... Anytime you commission your friend to draw Vaporeon, you're taking <laughs> dollars out of Uncle Nintendo's pocket, right?
1: Out of Miyamoto's pocket. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> um, uh, but, like, you know, in Hussey's case, like, the, you know, it like, yes, Hussey has the right to kind of, like, make money off of these projects uh, or, like, uh, the, their merchandise and everything. Um, and it's one of those things where you think about, like... If, uh, let's say, uh, uh, Madam Wizard School had to explain to all of her reader base about how you can't make your own wands, uh, like what sort of, how awkward and silly and weird that might have been. So we can see how one of the uh, benefits maybe of having a media property that comes out through uh, traditional corporate channels, you know, prior to the fact, uh, is that it puts a team of, like, expert lawyers and people who know what they are doing and saying in front of you to keep you from having to, like, explain copyright law to your million teenaged fans. That's all I'm gonna do. We're hard pivot (laughs) to only explaining copyright
1: law on the podcast.
0: Uh, Yeah. uh, So uh, anyway, right? Like one of the consequences of this, like where we're we're seeing, like, no, don't sell MSPA stuff without uh, Andrew's permission. Um, uh, An Etsy store that is like official for the Watt Pumpkin uh, uh, sort of brand opens up and. Uh, specific fan creators who have been making like little Scalemate plushies and things like that. Um, they get tapped to uh, make th- those things for the Etsy store. The problem with this is that there's no mass production. These are all just still like fandom creators. And so uh, uh, the prices like the Etsy store is long closed. It's gone. Um, mm-hmm. But the prices that people are quoting are like, you know, it's uh, $172 for a, a plush version of WV. That's,
1: that's quite a bit of money.
0: <laughs> it's quite a bit of money. Uh, and people are like, well, I mean, I would love to have this plush, but I'm not going to pay $172 for it. And the problem is, like, it's it's a bespoke thing, right? These are, like, individual creators who have been pulled out of the fandom f- via Tumblr and are just, like, making these things to order. So they're pricey. Yeah. Uh, yeah. $100 for, for troll horns, right? Which are things that people are making on their own out of styrofoam and like old headbands, right? Um, so uh, you know, I think I think that that's interesting also because uh, it happens at about the same time. I'm starting to see like people like the readers being like, "Oh, stop fucking with my characters," which is all right. also happening in this moment with the comic where uh, the comic has been taken over by a nefarious author who has some sort of design on the story, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: there, there's... Uh, and I'm not saying that, like, all of this is planned, right? But I'm uh, historically, this is one of those things, as Michael is thinking through, like, okay, how are the voices of the authorial persona being played against each other here? Because that's the thing that I'm interested in. Um, I'm also, like, noticing how this... Helps me think about what it means for something that was kind of a loose, uh, freewheeling endeavor to slowly start to try to consolidate itself into something more official and, and uh, more traditionally corporate. And kind of like what those growing pains are and what they look like, especially how those things look and feel to fans who maybe have a tendency to uh, not like those things or to want things to not change in that way. Yeah, of course. Uh yeah, the, unfortunately history happens and the ground moves underneath you. Mhm. And you have to like reconcile with that.
2: Mhm.
1: Cool.
0: Cool. All right then. So next time, uh, there will be no tricks or anything. You won't have to, like, uh, stop yourself from reading, even though you desperately want to continue on, as we can continue with Episode 6, Part 3, uh, where I would like you all to read up through page 4,100. And that'll take us very, very close to the end of Act 5, Act 2. Okay, cool. <laughs> later.
1: I'm ready for it, (laughs) goodbye!